The title of the message this morning is True Faith Truly Works. True Faith Truly Works. And we're going to look at the passage of scripture today that is really uh, the the section of scripture that kind of gives James, uh, I wouldn't say a bad name in scripture, but it's the part of James that people for centuries have always wondered about. What is he really saying here? What does this mean? Wow, this is really heavy. This is hard. Um, and so hopefully as we go through this, we can, we can unpack it together a bit and, and so that you have a good understanding of what James is, is saying here. As I've told you from the very beginning, one of the things that we know about the letter of James was that he was writing to scattered Christians But even though these Christians had moved away and they were living in these different towns and villages, uh, James approached some topics that weren't really easy topics to talk about. Now remember, James had been the leader of the church in Jerusalem where a lot of these people had all come from. So because of that, James had a certain level of authority for these people. Because when they saw a letter coming, it's like, coming from, I don't know, an official. It's, it's like, whoa, this is from James, from Jerusalem. This has some authority to it. There's some weight to this. But James, instead of taking the easy route, what he did is he approached some things that were just hard to talk about. That's why I told you in the beginning, James sometimes even feels blunt. He almost feels like he's, he's like wants to start a fight with you or something because some of the hard things that James is willing to say. He didn't avoid those hard conversations. Instead, he he really met them head on. And in this section, he's describing the difference between people that have true faith and those who don't. And then he looks at the outcome of people with true faith. And as you can imagine, that's kind of a hard statement, a hard conversation to have with someone, especially someone who calls themselves a Christian. To be able to come up to somebody and say, oh yeah, you're a Christian? Well, let me tell you what your Christianity ought to look like. Whoa, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's a conversation that most of us would want to have. But James knew that it was important that people didn't get off track believing something that wasn't true in their life. All right? And, and I think that this is important for us to think about as we take an honest look at our own relationship with God. No matter where we find ourselves here this morning, I think we will be challenge to grow. So let me pray for us and then we'll begin reading this passage from James. God, as we approach this today, Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts and ears to hear the things that you want to speak. Lord, we we study the Bible, we approach the Bible because we know that it is your word and we want to know what you have to say, even if the things that you have to say don't feel good even if the things that you have to say are hard for us to hear. And so, Lord, we just pray that as we dig into your word, that you would speak to us clearly through it. Lord, I put my heart out there with all my brothers and sisters here this morning and just say, Lord, speak to us. Guide us by your Holy Spirit. Allow us to know what it is that you want to speak to us in our lives right here today. And Lord, may we take those things that we hear and apply them to our lives and be made more and more into the the people that you're calling us to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so in James chapter 2, verse 14, 
Let's begin reading there this morning. It says this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. All right. To begin understanding these verses, the, the, the first thing we have to start with is just the word faith. Faith. We're going to talk a lot about faith this morning. If you, if you went to the dictionary and just went for a simple definition of faith, you're at church, you probably have some idea of what faith is, but just a simple definition is right here on the screen for you. Faith. Trust or belief in something or someone. All right, that's the most basic, generic explanation of faith. Trust or belief in something or someone. All right? The word faith shows up in the Bible over 450 times. That's a lot of times in the Bible. We talk a lot about faith when we're at church, when we're reading the scripture, when we're figuring out our spiritual lives, we talk a lot about faith. And everybody has some degree of faith, that kind of faith. Everyone, Christians, non-Christians, Hindus, Buddhists, agnostics, atheists, it doesn't matter. Everybody has some degree of faith. In fact, we can't really even function in the world without faith, some kind of faith. Here's what I mean by that. For example, I know today that I'm in a room full of people with faith. Why? Because you're all sitting in chairs. Every one of you had faith in the chair that you're sitting in right now. You walked up and you're like, maybe, not sure. I'm going to go with this, right? But you still, you put your weight on that chair. You're sitting in that chair. You have faith that the chair is going to do what the chair is supposed to do. And thank God, so far it's happened. <laughs> All right? That's, that is actually a, a bit of faith. Why? Because it's a little bit of trust in something. It's trust that this chair is going to do what the chair is supposed to do. It's, it's some degree of faith. But that's not the faith that James is talking about when he's talking about this faith that has an active aspect to it that, it, that ends up in works. That's not what he's describing. And that's not the faith, the sort of general faith that we usually see in Scripture. Remember, this letter was written specifically to Christians. The letter of James wasn't meant to be evangelistic. He wasn't trying to con convince people of the truth of God and the gospel. He was writing to Christians, people that already said we're people of faith. We already trust in Jesus as our Savior. All right? And, and so here he's not trying to, to convince them to become Christians. He's, he's addressing those who already are. And when James talks about faith, it is specifically Christian faith. Okay? Not just faith in a chair faith. Christian faith. And Christian faith isn't just general faith. That, that generic faith that we talked about. It's trust and belief in a specific God, his son, Jesus, and his plan for this life and the life to come. And as Christians, we all share these, these 
tenets of the faith, these doctrines, no matter what Christian church you're part of. Okay, now people describe it differently and there's a lot of extra things on top of the basic parts of our faith. But the basic parts of our faith are shared by all Christians, shared beliefs. If you, if you go to our, our church website and if you're, for somebody who doesn't know anything about our church or is learning about our church and they look at our website, they'll see a little thing about our vision and our values as a church. And then there's a little thing that you can click on that says statement of faith. To describe those basic tenets of faith. So that when somebody approaches our church. They're like okay well is this actually a Christian church? Or is it something else? And, and the way that ours is broken down is in four simple categories. It's things that we believe about God. The, the fact that we believe in Father, Son and Holy Spirit. A triune God. It talks about humanity and salvation. Who we are as people. And how Jesus came to give us salvation. It talks about. Uh, the church and what the point and purpose of the church is in the world and then it talks about the bible all right and those those four simple categories describe much of the basic foundational things that make all christian churches christian and all christian believers to have a christian shared christian faith right because if you take any of those pieces out all of a sudden the thing that you have is no longer christianity even if you put the name Jesus Christ in the title of your church. If you believe in a different God than the God that we're referring to, if you look to a different book than the Bible that we look to, you're talking about a different faith, okay? So we're talking about Christian faith. And here's the big question that James poses to these listeners, these readers that get this letter. The big question is this. He says, can you truly call yourself a Christian if your faith doesn't affect your actions. If it doesn't affect your actions. Is the faith that you have or the belief that you have actually saving Christian faith? Right? Go back. Look at it again. That's what he says. He says if somebody says he has faith but doesn't have any works, does that faith actually save that person? He's calling into question these people's faith. I know that doesn't feel like something that we want to do on a regular basis in a conversation with your neighbor or whatever. But this is what James is saying. He's like, look, this is important. It's so important, I'm willing to risk offending you to bring this up and to tell you, hey, think about this. Check this out. Pay attention to it. And this is the spot where if you, if you hear this and, and you're like, well, why, why does that why does that matter? I mean, I didn't think that we were saved by works. I thought we were saved by faith. And, and how does this work? I know um, that that may cause a little pause for those of you who know enough of that theology. Um, we do know that we are saved by faith, but we're going to see more about this later. All right? Because here's what I want you to recognize. James is not arguing against being saved by faith alone. He argues against salvation alone without the works and obedience that accompany true faith. Okay? I'm going to say that again because that's kind of hard to, it's tricky. He's not saying, he's not saying, well, you're not saved by faith alone. No, what he's saying is you can't just have salvation alone with nothing else to show for it. He's saying you can't just get saved and then there's no transformation of your life. He's not arguing those differences. He's saying they're, they're together. Okay? Faith 
is more than just a nice idea in our head about God. That's what he's trying to point out. And, and this is what he says, you know, you, look, how, how many of you would come across a brother or sister in, in the Lord, somebody at church who says, hey, I didn't get paid this week. I ran out of money. My, you know, car died and I need some food. I haven't eaten in two days. You don't walk up to that person and say, oh, God bless you, brother. Be warm and filled. Have a great day. And go on about your business. James says, what, what is that? No, if, if you've got a brother or sister who's in need, you're, you're going to do something about it. You, you should have an action that, that comes with that. What our modern equivalent, um, you've, I'm sure you've seen this before, where you know, you'll see some social media post and somebody, you know, whatever, they're, they're sharing a struggle, they're sharing a loss of a loved one or something. And then you'll see this little line, someone there, sending positive thoughts your way. Right? Or, you know, it, it, that's, what is that? Oh, I mean, okay, it's, it's nice. You're thinking about me, whatever. But what's your thought doing? Now, I guess if you believe that in energies uh, and, and things, there's, there's a lot of other things going on there. But that's really what he's saying. He's saying you're, you're saying that you believe this thing or you're, you're passing this this way, but there's nothing, nothing to show for it. We do it as Christians, though on a regular basis. Um, pastors are notorious for this and I try to be very careful about this. Have you ever, you hear something hard in somebody's life and the first, your Christian instinct just says, oh, I'll pray for you. But then you never really pray. It's the same kind of thing, right? So what we have to do, we, we don't want to just say we'll pray for them. We have to pray for them when we tell them we're going to pray for them. And, and we should, right? There's, there's something more to it. Now, here's what we, we see as we're, we're thinking about this and, and looking at this a little bit with James. You have to remember that the early Christians, which these Christians were, the early Christians viewed other Christians as family. All right? And so it's not surprising that James says, when you see a brother or sister, he doesn't mean your actual biological family. If your brother or sister is in need, he's talking about the church family. Because that's how Christians viewed other Christians. Now, part of that might have been because uh, for many Christians, and it still is this way in many parts of the world to this day, for many of them, when they became Christians, gave their lives to the Lord, converted to Christianity, their biological families may have abandoned them. Okay, that happens in a lot of cultures to this day. If you, if you come from a very a strictly Muslim country or Hindu uh, and you step out of the family traditional religion, in many cases, it's as if you died and your family will have nothing else to do with you ever again. So part of that is, hey, I lost the rest of my family. This is my new family. I'm going to view the church as my family, the, the other Christians. But the Bible itself describes our assimilation into the Christian faith as those who are adopted into the family of God. Now, if you're part of a family, you have certain rights as a family member. But you also have certain responsibilities as a family member. Okay, this is how this plays out in my house a lot. Say we, 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 we do our best to try to eat meals together as a family at least once a day. We, we aim for dinner. Um, 
obviously we're out and about at different times in the morning and at lunch. We're not together. But usually at dinner, we try to set aside time where we're sitting together at the meal. All right, and as we finish up, whatever, it may be time to, we've got dishes to take care of or whatever, dishwashers there. And I may say to my kids, hey, load, you know, load your dishes into the dishwasher. Or the really gets, this is where it really gets tricky is if the dishwasher is already full of clean dishes and you got to unload the dishwasher to put the dirty dishes in. So it's like, hey, girls, will you unload the dishwasher? Whoa! Right? That's where it all starts melting. And I know this is not just at my home. That's why I bring this up, right? Like, why do I have to do chores? Well, what is the dad answer? Dad, if you don't know this answer, you, thank you, you to me. You're welcome. I'm going to give it to you right now. The answer is because you're part of this family. Well, what am I saying there? I'm saying, look, yes, you are part of this family. But being part of this family doesn't mean that you get off from everything else. It means you're sharing in the responsibility of the family because you're part of the family. You're one of us. If it was your friend that was over here, the guest, no, I won't make them do the dishes. But you, you're part of the family, right? And it's that, that's the way it is. We have certain responsibilities. So what about these Christians? These Christians that realize, I am part of this family. God is my father. Jesus is my older brother. These are my brothers and sisters in Christ. So what is my responsibility to them? It's changed. It's different now. You really are part of this family. If you're a Christian here today, you are my brother or you are my sister. Because we share the same adopted father. Okay? It's more than just a symbolic thing of saying you're a family member. It includes action. That's what James is getting at here. He's saying, look, you say you're part of the family. Well, then I need to know and see that you're part of the family. And simply saying you have faith does not prove its genuineness. And neither does the flip side of that to say, well, I don't have to say I have faith. I'm just going to do some good works. God will see it and kind of count me in with everybody else. No, that's what James approaches next. He says in verse 18, he says, but someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. Here's what he says. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even demons believe and shudder. Because here's what we find. Doing just the works of a Christian or the works of a family member, that's also incomplete. If the neighbor kid comes over and knocks on the door and says, hey, I'd like to unload your dishwasher. Truth be told, I'm going to let them. (laughs) But that doesn't mean that I'm going to say, you're now part of the family. Right? It's going to take probably a little bit more than that. Maybe not a lot more, but it's going to take some more. And that's also what Jesus taught. In fact, there's this really interesting passage of scripture that maybe you've heard or read before that feels kind of hard and harsh and confusing that Jesus spoke. But listen to what Jesus says here. And this is all about this family relationship. In Matthew 7, 22. In 23, Jesus says this. He said, on that day, meaning the day of judgment, the end of all things, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works 
in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That seems harsh. We're like, wait a minute. These people really did prophesy in the name of Jesus? Yes. Did many works in the name of Jesus? Yes. But there was no family relationship. That's heavy. But that's what Jesus is, is getting at. He says, no, it's, it, faith is necessary. Being part of this family is necessary. Yes, the works matter too. But you've got to start here with this. That is how this all works together. Good works do not equal true faith. And belief in God does not equal true faith. That's what he goes on and says there. Look, the devil himself believes in God. That's no great thing. In fact, the devil knows God. But it doesn't mean that he is in a faith relationship with God. The angels that fell with the devil, what we call demons, they existed with God. Do they believe in God? Oh yeah, they believe in God very clearly. They have no question about the existence of God. They don't even wrestle with it like humans do. They know God. But belief about God is not the same as putting our trust in God. This is what true faith is. A trust in Jesus for salvation that results in a transformed life. So James goes on here and he's going to give us a couple examples. In verse 20 of James 2, he says this. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Now, don't worry if you don't know what in the world James is talking about here, okay? Remember, James is writing to Jewish Christians, people that had been raised in Jewish culture, that from the time they were little all the way through, they knew all about the Old Testament stories, they knew about Abraham and Rahab and Moses and all of the Old Testament stories. So they, they were very familiar with this. So James doesn't go into a whole lot of description explaining those two stories because he already knows this is very well known. Okay. Um, and the first of these two examples is a story about Abraham. Now I'll just give you the, the short version. If you want to go back and read about Abraham, you can. He's in Genesis from the very beginning. Abraham is... The, the first of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All right, Abraham was the one that God approached and said, hey, from you and all of your offspring from generations on, from you, I'm going to make a nation of people specifically for me that are going to be my people. And I am going to show the world who I am through this group of people. 
And I'm going to start with you, Abraham. Nobody else. Okay, this is after Adam and Eve and all those things. The people started to populate the earth. He says, look, people still don't know me and they don't understand me. Abraham, you and the generations that follow you are going to learn about me through your offspring. Now, here's the thing about that. And and James brings it up. He says, um, it's from Genesis 15, where he says, Abraham, when he heard God say that, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But there was a problem. Abraham was already an old man and he had no offspring. He had no kids. So even though God says, through your offspring, I'm going to make a great nation. Instead of Abraham saying, well, that's obviously not going to happen. What Abraham said instead was, all right, I'm going to believe you. I mean, it's the fact that God is talking to me right now. I might as well. <laughs> so, so Abraham believes God. And as, as the story unfolds, what we find is that supernaturally, God touches Abraham's wife, Sarah. And even though she also is old, way past the age of having kids, the two of them together have a son, have offspring, Isaac. And they are blown away. God is fulfilling this radical statement that he said he was going to do. He did. And so here are these elderly people, okay? Abraham's 100 at this point, past 100, because once Isaac grows up, I mean, we're talking old people here, right? With a young kid. They love this son. As you can imagine, it's a miracle of God. Every day they wake up, they look at themselves like, I'm 100, I've got a 13-year-old. This is weird, Right? But that's what they, that's what they do. And, but they're, they're trusting God in it. And so they have this son, Isaac. Well, things are going along perfectly well until Isaac, probably a teenager at this point, Isaac is, is going about life and God comes back to Abraham and he says the unthinkable. What God says to Abraham is he says, Abraham, take your son Isaac, the promised one, the one that I'm going to build a nation out of, Take your son Isaac, take him up on a hill, and I'm going to have a little worship service up there. And you're going to bring Isaac, and he's going to be part of it. In fact, he's going to be a main part of it. Because Abraham, I want you to take a knife, I want you to take wood, you're going to go up there, you're going to build an altar, and you're going to sacrifice your son on this altar. Now, Abraham was probably going all along at this point, up to this point, like, yay, God is awesome. Yay, God is good. Yay, God does miraculous things. He's incredible. But when he hears that, who knows what's going through his mind? They begin to make the preparations. He says, hey, Isaac, we're going up here on the mountain. We're going to do this. They start heading up the the mountain. And Isaac, being a, a good, respectful son that realizes his dad's getting a little senile, says, hey dad, I know you want to hike this mountain and we're going to do a sacrifice, but we forgot the sacrifice. So don't worry, old man, sit here. I'll go back and grab a goat or something, right? But look to what Abraham tells Isaac in Genesis 22, verse eight. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. God's already told Abraham, it's Isaac that I'm going to I'm going to have you sacrifice. But Abraham still walking in faith, because remember we're talking about faith, but we're talking about faith that results in works. Abraham says, I'm going to have faith, but I'm moving forward in these works. As the, the, the story continues, 
they head on up the mountain and prepare the offering. They build the altar. They get things ready. Now, what's happening in Abraham's heart in that process? Well, it's a testing. The Bible tells us it was a testing of his faith. That his faith was not only in word. And the action was to verify the faith in his heart. And what we find is that as the story goes on, they build the altar. And Abraham has to say to Isaac, Isaac, climb up on that altar. Climb up on that altar. Because you are the sacrifice. And the story tells us in Genesis 22 that Abraham moves forward. He, his son is up there on the altar. He takes the knife ready to sacrifice his own son. And in Genesis 22, verse 11, it says, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham's faith wasn't just empty promises. His actions followed his faith. Very heavy story to try to think about. The the next story that that James brings up here is about Rahab. Rahab is another Old Testament story. Um, And and Rahab was a, a woman... So, so this is um, after Moses has taken the Israelites out of Egypt, out of captivity. Then they wander around in the desert for 40 years, right? And then when it's actually time for them to cross over the Jordan River into the promised land and begin taking these cities that God has said, this is the promised land of Canaan, I'm setting apart for you. When it finally comes to that point with Joshua, Moses dies, Joshua takes his place to lead them into the promised land. And when they start heading into the promised land, they send spies ahead to one of the cities, the city of Jericho. And they send these spies ahead to see what's going on and see the layout of the city and all of that. And they send these two spies in and these spies are trying to stay undercover, right? And so they're looking for the dark, shady corners of town. They stumble upon a prostitute's house. And they, they come in here to this prostitute. The prostitute, Rahab, realizes who these guys are and where they're coming from. And as they come in, the authorities are alerted to the fact that there's some spies around here. And they're, they're spying us out. And so they come looking for these spies. But Rahab does something that you don't expect. Rahab, this prostitute, she takes and hides these spies. So that when the authorities come and they come to her house and they're looking, have you seen these men? Rahab actually says, well, yeah, they were here, but then they, they took off. They left the city. You better hurry. You might catch them. All right. And, and so the, the spies come out thinking, what did you just do? Like, we thought for sure we were dead because they got us. They found us. And Rahab says something very interesting. Here's what she says in Joshua 2, verses 9 and 11. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. The Lord, your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. What we see is a statement of faith in Rahab. She says, look, these are my people. This is my town. But I know that the God you follow is truly the Lord. And I believe that what that God is going to do is what's going to happen. And instead of me pushing against it with the rest of these people... I want to believe and have faith in that God. And so that is why my actions followed my faith. 
her true faith in God caused her to betray her own people and let these spies escape. Just like Abraham, her actions followed her faith. True faith results in action. True faith has a purpose. It's not useless. True faith is a practical faith. Now, like I said before, earlier, this section of scripture causes a lot of misunderstanding for the people studying the Bible. Some have felt like James has like a contradictory view to Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament. And the reason they see that is because they read a verse like this and they're like, wait a minute. So was it the works that saved them? Because what I read in the rest of the New Testament and the rest of Scripture, I see that Paul says very clearly, it's not your works that saves you. What does he say over and over? It's by faith that we're saved, not of works. And we're, we'll look at that verse here in a minute. So is what James saying here is it's actually, no, no, no. You have to do works so that you are saved. That's not what we're finding here. James is not saying that we must work for our salvation. His point is that true saving faith always results in works. So if you are truly saved, then you will truly have works that come along with it. But your works aren't what is providing salvation for you. You're saved. And because you're saved, you do the works. All right? I know that's kind of a, a difficult line to understand. And for some of you, you're like, I don't care. It's fine. I believe in him and I'm going to do what he calls me to do. For others of you, you're trying to get your brain around the theology. So it's tricky. I, I know uh, this is, people have wrestled with this for a long time. But true saving faith always results in works. And, and this, this last verse that uh, we look at, this, the next verse that we look at, helps illustrate this a little better. Verse 26 of James 2. What he says there is he says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. If your spirit leaves your body, your body is dead. If your body leaves your spirit... <laughs> Right? This is the way, the separation of those two, you're no longer a, a, a human being that is alive. And that is consistent with the rest of the theology that we find in the Bible. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Period. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works. So that no one may boast. But then look what the verse that follows it says. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. These, these passages don't fight. They're saying the same thing in a different way. We are saved by faith and we should walk in good works. All right, one commentator said it this way. Here's a quote for you. He said, Faith and works are not enemies. True faith and righteous works go hand in hand. They are two parts of God's work in us. Faith brings a person to salvation. And works bring that person to faithfulness. Faith is the cause. Works are the effect. Faith and works are intertwined. In the same way that the body and the spirit are joined. They're inseparable. 
And people of true faith are people of works. True faith truly works. You get that? You with me on it? Okay. So, what does that then mean for you today? Okay, you understand the Bible part of it. But bring that now back to your life. How does that affect you? Well, first off, we have, to, we have to do what James did here. First off, if you say that you're a person of faith and there are no works that point to that in your life, you should reassess your faith. Ooh, that's harsh, pastor. Yeah, it has to be harsh. Because the last thing I would want for you and the last thing you want for you is to think well, I said a prayer that one time in third grade. I've got to be good with God. I don't want you to not know. No, that's not what we find here. We have to remember that it, we can deceive ourselves. That's what cause, that's what deception is. We might all think we're smart and we've got it and we'll never get confused or miss something. It's not true. We're all easily deceived. We're human beings. It's part of being human. Okay, the Pharisees that Jesus interacted with all through the Gospels were people that believed of anybody that they knew they were the ones closest to God. They had devoted their lives to good works. They were the ones that were spending the time studying the scriptures. They were the ones that told other people about it. They were the ones who would teach in the synagogue. In their minds, they're like, we're the ones closest to God. They're the ones that ultimately murdered the Messiah that came to them. The very Messiah that they were waiting for. They thought they were close to God, but they were far from him. And we can tell ourselves that we prayed a prayer and have eternity all squared away. But if our faith hasn't affected our lives, we might be mistaken. All right, so, so there's those, those people. The next group of people might question their faith, and this is where I find myself sometimes, because not all of their works line up with what they believe. That's the next place where a lot of us find ourselves when we look at this. When I, when I ask myself, self, do I have true faith? Am I really right with God? Well, I should take a look at what I do. Pastor told me that my works should reflect my faith. Oh, I said that this week. I did that this week. I felt this way that, oh, or remember this or that. That doesn't seem to line up. All right, that's the next thing that we run into. And with that, you should be reminded that you are in process. In Philippians uh, chapter one, there's a verse that says, the one who started those, that good work, he will complete it. In the day of Jesus Christ. As believers, as Christians, as people of true faith, we know that we are in process of being transformed. We are growing, we are moving. And sometimes we have the residual effect of sin in our life and some bad habits and bad decisions that still want to haunt us as life goes on. That doesn't mean that we are not people of faith. It means that we're people in process, people that are being sanctified. Have some grace with yourselves if that's where you find yourself. But also know that change is possible. 
In fact, as a Christian, change isn't just possible or probable, it's certain. If you are a true believer, God's at work in you. And he wants to change your actions. He wants to change who you are. So don't be discouraged if you feel like sometimes those things don't line up. Instead, be encouraged to do the things that God has for you to do. Be the person that God's called you to be and enjoy the work that he's prepared for you. Um, I, just one little side note here on that. I've been reading this book that has talked some about that, about our actions and, and how, we, um, how we function in the world. And one of the things that it talks about is just our simply are small daily cho- uh, choices. Life is made up of a series of choices. And the, the point in this is he says, look, these small choices that you make daily add up to habits. The habits that then you build, you pile those on top of each other and it shapes your character. And your character is ultimately who you are, what's, what's in you. But it starts all the way back with these small little choices. And when we want to try to move toward God and toward the people that God's called us to be, we start with these little choices. It's not just the great big thing, I'm going to be glorious for God. I'm going to be the the one that is really walking with him. Yeah, that's, that's, that's good. But start by doing something small today that moves you in that direction. And allow those choices to push out the other choices that you used to make daily. Change those habits. And allow those habits then to build together to shape you differently. Let your character be shaped and changed. It's not too late for any of us on that, guys. We can move in the path that God has for us to move. Our decisions shape the people we become. So choose wisely. And then finally, the last group here is we've wrap this up is is those who have true faith and honestly I think this is most of you guys here today you have good a true faith and you are living it out with good works yeah there's some not so good works that we're working on and we're changing but you are moving in that that path and for you today I think the word is keep it up keep up the good work And don't be discouraged in doing the things that are right. Because that's the other thing that happens. Even when we are pursuing the Lord and we've directed our lives toward him and we're making those wise choices, you can still wear out. You can still get tired. The Bible says in Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Keep on the right path. There is a harvest of righteousness that's coming. You are on the right page. And when you're in that path, I know sometimes it's hard. I know sometimes it's discouraging. But keep headed in that way. Because it's a great privilege as the family of God to participate in the work that God has for us. Every person of true faith is called to good works. Every one of us. That's what James says. If you've got true faith, you've got true works. Every one of us. Some of us are called to work inside the church. Others are called to work outside the church. Some of us are called to do both. No matter where you're at, nobody's called to just sit on their hands and do nothing. We're called to work as Christians. When speaking to all of his followers in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this. In Matthew 5, 16, he said, Let your light shine before others 
so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Every one of you, no matter what your job is, what your vocation is, if you're a student, it doesn't matter. Every one of you who is a believer is called to do good works, works for the Lord. It is, it, it is in that way that people see God. Before that, he said that we're the light of the world. And he uses us to show his glory through our actions. Well, I, I do want to just finish with a, one, more, one more little thought here. Because what I don't want to leave you with, we're talking about practical faith with James. I don't want to leave you with nothing practical to take home. All right, what are some of the good works that we as Christians have an opportunity to do? What are those works? I mean, the first things that come to mind are personal good works, right? I, prayer. I should pray. I should study the Bible, you know, um, acts of charity. There's different things like that that may come to mind. True, those are all good works. Here's one example that I've been thinking about quite a bit lately. You know, there, there's a real temptation that has exponentially increased in the past year for Christians to give up on church. Okay, and, and now you know this week that it's really cold in here. Next week, when you're laying in your warm bed, <laughs> you'll say, ah, oh, I think they, they, there's a camera. I think we might just live stream this week, right? It'd be so much nicer to just stay in bed, warm and cozy. There, there's a real temptation for, for Christians, and I know this because I've talked to many pastors that are experiencing this, that they're just like, we want to give, people just want to give up on church. Why? Because, well, our good habits were broken, and our whole world, our schedules were turned upside down and everything else. And there's risk and there's danger. And we couldn't gather for an extended period of time. And, and it's been a struggle for people to get back into the rhythm of regular church participation. Of gathering together for worship. Now, coming to church, being part of a church community, that's not what saves you. But being a part of a church community is one of the works of being a Christian. It may not feel like work for you in your mind, but it is. Carving out time every Sunday morning takes discipline. It takes effort. It takes discipline to be here. It's work, but it's one of the good works that God's called his people to. So I realize I am preaching to the choir. You're here, <laughs> but do it and continue to do it. It's one of those good works. Service in the church is another one of those things. Some of you faithfully serve this church community with kids ministry or youth ministry or AV or music, life groups. There's so many different things. Keep up the good work. God's pleased and your church family is blessed. And these are all different opportunities to put your faith to work. So if you say here today, well, yes, I am a person of true faith, but I can't think of any works that I do or anything that really reflects that. What am I supposed to do? There's lots of opportunities. Just coming to church is one of those works. Serving in the church is one of those works. The way that you love your neighbors, your coworkers. There's so many opportunities as we then even think about how do you engage with the world outside of the church. You could be a teacher in the way that you love those kids. You could work on an Amazon delivery truck in the way that you interact with your coworkers. There's so many different ways that we can engage with the world in ways that let our actions reflect our faith. 
Look for ways to be involved in God's work, even unexpected ways. Because God's work takes many forms. Well, I hope, that, I hope that that's an encouragement to you today. I hope you're not discouraged by it, but I hope you also understand that true faith results in true works. Let's pray here this morning.